The sun is shining in Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello again, everybody. This is Harry Carey. That's the most asinine marketing I've ever heard of. Live. Bryant sends one a deep left way back. It is gone. A three-run homer. In the entertainment capital of the world. Didn't matter what the count was. It's the T.C. Martin Show. to get your daily prescription from the doctor. Oh, my goodness. That's the longest home run to center field we have seen in this ballpark. T.C. Martin. Way back in my feet. It could be. Cobweb. 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 Holy cow. Look at the left fielder. He has the ball in the end. He has that one. And here comes the pound out on the field. The doctor is now in. The doctor actually is out. This is Stevie Slapshot filling in. I'll be here today and tomorrow. The doctor is on assignment. We sent him out. We're going to be talking a little NHL today. We're going to talk some NFL. And we're going to talk some wrestling to finish up the show today. But we're going to start with our Major League Baseball correspondent in Houston, it's the man himself, T.C. Martin. How are you, T.C.? Stevie Slapshot. Hey, thank you, uh, first and foremost, for uh, manning mission control today for the next two days. Uh, well, I am out here uh, on assignment, as you say, uh, gallivanting around and enjoying myself at games one and two of the American League Championship Series here, my friends. So uh, thank you very much. I'm wondering, what are you expecting in game one, TC? The Astros are off of three days rest, and that's not a big gap, but, but athletes are you know, creatures of habit, and they, baseball players play every day. That's what they're used to. So three days, you know, it gets some guys rested up, but they, they, they could be a little sluggish coming out. There could be a little bit of rust there. And then the Yankees are hungover, TC. <laughs> this is true. Uh, you know, when you go back to the beginning of the postseason for the Astros, remember they had, they had five days off, and that was a big concern. How are they going to react? Because as we've talked about before, you know, you don't even have five days off during the All-Star break, you know, and usually you've got players that are, that are playing, and, and but you don't have, you know, five full days off. And then for the most important part of your season, you start that going. Well, the Astros were really the only team that wasn't affected. I mean, the Yankees got off, you know, uh, to, a, to a slow start. The Braves got off to a slow start in the Blues. And Dodgers, exact same thing, and they ended up losing. Uh, I think, you know, the Dodgers really were kind of the only team that jumped out to that game one, you know, victory where they scored runs in the first inning. Astros won game one against Seattle, but it took them, as we know, you know, seven or eight innings before they could get it cracking. And then, of course, the Jordan Alvarez, you know, you know, Homer, uh, the bottom of the ninth. So, you know, I think there is something to that. But I think at this point in time, it's different because you've already had these three games. And if you're talking about the Astros, it was more like four games because they had 18 in the fair, you know, when they clinched it last Saturday in Seattle. So they needed that rest uh, with that long road trip to get back to Houston. They practiced the last couple of days and now gives you a chance to get your pitching order in in order, which they do now, Justin Verlander, Framber Valdez, and then Lance McCullers going games one, two, and three. 
So I think the Astros are in a good spot. I think it was just enough rest, um, you know, and they're at home. They know that they've got the number one seed overall now, American League as well as the National League, thanks to the Dodgers losing. So this is big. And as we know, you know, they have owned the Yankees. And, the, you know, as they say, the old Pedro, you know, who's your daddy? Well, the Astros are the Yankees' daddy. We know that because they have dominated them the last five years in the postseason, and they dominated them this year as well, too, winning five out of seven. So you talked about the uh, the, the matchups for uh, for Houston, the starting pitching for Houston. Do you know – we know who's going tonight for the Yankees, Cortez. Do, do you know who's following him? Because I, I looked for these matchups this morning, and I couldn't find them anywhere. No, actually, Cortez went yesterday because, remember, oh, they were right, going right, to go right. Jameson – they they were going to go Jamison Tyon, and remember they relegated Tyon to the bullpen, uh, even though he started all season long. And then they said, okay, we're going to kick you to the bullpen because you know we, we don't we don't think you're that much. And then they named him as the starter uh, for game number five. But then they had the rain out, and then Aaron Boone says, oh, you know what, we're going to go to Cortez. We'll give well, you know on three days rest. Let's go with him. So the Yankees were up in the air who they were going to start in game one because, you know, Cortez was good and he went five innings yesterday in that clincher against Cleveland. So Tyon is actually getting the start for the Yankees today and Verlander is getting the start for the Astros. So obviously it is a big advantage, not just from a rest standpoint, but just from uh, a production standpoint because Tyon's been, you know, he's been batter, you know, all season long. You know, he's not going to go a whole bunch of innings. And, you know, then you got the factor, too. Hey, if you're Jameson Tyon, Stevie, how do you feel that this guy is, you know, was a starter all year long, and then all of a sudden Aaron Boone says, okay, we get to the postseason, yeah, you're going to the bullpen because we don't think you're one of our three best starters right now. And then, well, let's see, game five comes around. We kind of spend our bullpen and everybody else. Okay, you're going to start. Oh, we get a rain out. Okay, guess what? Now you're not going to start. You're back to the bullpen. And now game one, uh, what are we going to do? Game one of the championship series, you're starting. I mean, if you're tie-on, how much confidence do you have in yourself? How much confidence do you have in your manager? A lot, lot of doubt there, TC. That's a good point. There's got to be a lot of doubt in the young man's mind, uh, you know, going into uh, into tonight's game one. Then, uh, So back, back to my other question then, and I'm sorry I messed up on, the, on who was starting tonight, but has Aaron Boone named his starters for games two and three yet, or is it a mess because, you know, they just, they just played last night? Yeah, he hasn't officially named him, but I think he's leaning towards Garrett Cole, which would be an interesting scenario for the Yankees because, as you know, former Houston Astro, and then for him to pitch back here at Minute Maid Park, uh, that is going to be something else. And then then comes the question, how are the fans going to treat Garrett Cole? And as we know, I mean, you know, Garrett Cole was part of that 2017 World Series, you know, team for Houston, but then he left. He's one of the first guys that left for the big contract, and then he goes to the Yankees. And uh, I can tell you that, Stevie, from being, you know, here since Dusty's taken over in 2020, obviously, you know, 2020, there were no fans. But, you know, last year and this year and being there uh, for games during the regular season and the postseason, nobody talks about Garrett Cole here. It's not like these fans miss him at all. So I would uh, expect a bunch of resounding boos if he is the game two starter. And, you know, here's the thing about Garrett Cole. That I, the little bit that I know about him, talking to guys, you know, his former teammates and stuff like that, is that he's kind of a quirky dude. And if you remember opening day this year for the Yankees when they had that delay because they had the long, um, you know, intros for the lineups, and Garrett Cole got mad at the Yankees organization and said, hey, you're delaying my start by 23 minutes. 
You know, I mean, I need to get out here and pitch. You know, I got a routine. I mean, he is a quirky dude. He's got a little bit of a temper, and he could totally get flustered in the moment if he's the game two starter at Minute Maid Park, you know, with these 40,000 fans going crazy tomorrow night under the big, the big lights of the postseason, and especially knowing that, you know, that the Astros have had the Yankees' number. So I think that's going to be a huge subplot of this series. Just last week, T.C., he was complaining uh, a little bit about the pressure of pitching in New York, and I'm thinking to myself, well, then why did you go there and take that contract if you you don't like that, right? You are absolutely correct on that, exactly. But we know why he did it, because the Astros weren't going to give him the money, and he took this big check, and, you know, there are certain guys – that can shine in the Big Apple, in the big stage of New York City, especially with the Yankees, and others that that, are, that can't. And right. we've seen it work both ways, right? We've seen that. You yes, know? we have. I mean, we've seen we've seen guys like Derek Jeter and Mariana Rivera. They thrived under the big lights, and they and they, and they took it. But those guys were mature adults. I really don't put Garrett Cole in that. And we've seen, you know, Joey Gallo was another one. He was miserable. You know, there he he was he was great at Cashman Field, right? Yeah, <laughs> with the Aviators. But you put him in the pinstripes at Yankee Stadium in front of fifty thousand plus night and night out. The guy hit like a buck thirty, and then he goes to to L.A. and you know he's okay for a while, but then you know yeah, guys, certain guys uh, just don't fit in with certain teams, and I think the, the Yankees have a couple of those guys like that. Let's talk about Justin Verlander going tonight, TC, off of a bad start. He's talked about he's made some adjustments, and he feels like he's ready to go tonight. Do you know what the adjustments are? What do you think that we'll see out of Justin Verlander tonight? Yeah, I think you're going to see a big-time performance by JV because I'll just point this to you and everybody else. When was the last time you've seen Justin Verlander have two bad starts in a row? Never. It doesn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen. And he's had like about three during the course of the season from May on uh, or April on, and he always bounced back. And I remember the the start against Seattle where he gave up six runs early on, and then he came back and and threw out goose eggs for the next couple starts after that. He is a guy that makes big-time adjustments. And the answer to your question is a lot of it is the familiarity with Seattle. Got to remember, that was the sixth time that he has faced uh, the Seattle Mariners this season. So there was that familiar, familiarity. And what the, the Mariners did is they decided, okay, we're going to jump on his fastball, you know, early because they kind of, you know, figured out a little bit of a pattern with him. And then he kind of settled down, you know, you know, after a while. The Yankees have not seen Verlander that much at all. Because you got to remember, I mean, he's basically missed the last two seasons altogether. So, I think, mean, you know, his – his command issues are going to be uh, huge tonight. And he usually has great command, and he's got that slider and that curveball working. I think he's going to fluster the Yankees hitters like he's done in the past. But, again, they haven't seen him in a long, long time. So I think this is going to bode very well for Verlander. Again, he's back at home. He's a game one starter. He's the horse. Dusty's going to rely on him. He's going to say, hey, man, give us all you got. He's not going to get pulled after five or six innings unless his pitch count is exceptionally high. But I, I think you're going to see Verlander get to nearly 100 pitches. Hopefully that's deep in the game. Then they can, you know, set everything up with Montero and then and close it out with Presley. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me if Verlander comes up big time. Houston Astros are a very interesting organization, TC, in that over about two or three general managers now, they built a team and then have kept it together. 
They originally had guys like George Springer, J.D. Martinez, Carlos Correa. Those guys are all gone now and have been replaced by guys like Jeremy Pena, Jordan Alvarez, Kyle Tucker, and then at the trade deadline this year, they pick up Trey Mancini. So, like I said, it's been like two or three different general managers, but they built a team, and then they've had some guys leave, but then they have rebuilt it, and I'm not sure it's not better now. No, I agree with you. You know, I mean, people here hated to see George Springer leave. Anytime you lead a lead, uh, you know, a leadoff hitter like Springer leads your organization and is a, and is a you know, a big factor in center field for you. And again, it, people liked him and everything. And I thought that was going to be the exact same thing with Carlos Correa. I saw Correa, you know, how well he was really the leader of this team. It's not Altuve. It's not Bregman. It wasn't Springer. Correa was always the leader of this team, and he led by example, and he did not want to leave. But that was his agent that was saying, hey, Carlos, we're going to make you the $350 million man. Maybe you could be the first $400 man. You know, maybe that can happen. And Carlos said, well, I really like it here. I don't want to leave. we got something special here, and I love all these guys. These are my brothers, especially the way it ended last year where they lost to the Braves in the World Series, and it was very tearful, and Correa did not want to leave. Well, what happened he never got that big contract, and the Astros said, you know, we're not going to match it because we got this guy named Jeremy Pena yeah. down in the minor leagues, and that's what happened. And then, so it came down to the 11th hour as they were approaching spring training. The Minnesota Twins were the only team that gave Correa a decent contract, but it wasn't going to be $350 million. So what Correa did, and I thought it was pretty smart, he told his agent, he says, you know what, because I don't know how I feel about going to Minnesota but I want a one-year opt-out. And that never happened, Stevie, as you well know. Right. And it did. And guess what Carlos Correa did? He didn't, wasn't happy with the organization, wasn't happy with the year that he had there. And he says, I like you people in Minnesota. It's great. But guess what? I'm opting out. So now there's talk that he could maybe even come back to Houston next year. However, the Astros are saying, we got Jeremy Payne. Yeah. And we get 22 homers during the regular season. The big homer in the 18th inning against the Mariners in that game three clincher to move the Astros on to the ALCS. Yeah, I, I miss Carlos Correa. Everybody here misses Carlos Correa. But this is uh, attributed to what the Astros do in the farm system. All of these guys that you mentioned, those are guys that came up through their own organization. And remember when the Astros were really bad? I mean, going back in yeah. you know, 2012, 13, 14, Bo Porter was the manager. And poor Bo, he had nothing to work with. I remember talking to Dusty about this, and Dusty felt bad for Bo Porter because he was a young, you know, um, African-American manager who was, who was coming up and, you know, a young guy giving a shot, but he had nothing to work with. And he said, hey, it's going to take time. Let's develop these guys in the farm system. And here comes Altuve. Here comes Brinkman. Here comes Springer. Here comes all these guys, you know, Correa. And then all of a sudden, then they started getting stockpiling more draft picks. And then this is the result that you see of the Astros. That's why you've seen this team go to six straight ALCSs because of the farm system. And then you can sprinkle in a couple of veterans, whether they're relief pitchers or, like you mentioned, a train Ancini or, you know, Christian Vasquez who comes over to back up Maldonado behind the dish. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, this is what this organization does. It's all about the farm system, and they've been true to that. And then you get a veteran like Dusty Baker to come in and finally manage them to push the right buttons, get, letting everybody feel good about themselves. This is the result you get. I, I was just gonna, I was gonna talk about Dusty a little bit later, but since you brought him sure. up, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it up now. I th- he he walked into a mess in Houston and immediately calmed the waters. Immediately, it was just amazing to me. That's who he is, man. 
And, you know, I've told this story a, a few times. So I was with him quite a bit during the pandemic in 2020 when we were back in Sacramento. I was going back to Sacramento, you know, just about every month. And so I was with him when he was actually on the phone negotiating his contract with, with Jim Crane and the owner of the Astros. And I said to him, I said, is this something you sure that you, that you want to do? And he looked me in the eye and he says, man, he goes, I want one more shot. He goes, they're going to give me the shot. I understand what I'm walking into. He goes, but there is a great nucleus here. And he goes, I know that there's going to be a lot of skepticism. There's going to be a lot of people who are saying, wow, Dusty, why are you doing that? This might tarnish your reputation. But he goes, you know, and Dusty, if you know anything about him, trust me. I mean, he is the humanitarian of all humanitarians. He's all about giving guys second chances. He's got second chances in life himself. And he says, I'm, I'm, I, I, I want this challenge. And from the opening press conference, when Jose Altuve was very nervous about answering questions back in spring training of 2020, you know, down there in Florida, and then there was Jim Crane, and then there was, there was Dusty Baker, and Dusty just said, hey, he goes, all that didn't happen on my watch. He goes, so give these guys a shot. Give these guys another chance. And, you know, they have to pay for their mistakes. Granted, he goes, but there's going to be a new regime. But he was the only guy that could clean this thing up because of his reputation. Because you cannot say a bad thing about Dusty Baker. So he was the right guy for the job. He was the only guy for the job. If they would have tried to bring in, you know, like a spotter who was their bench coach, who was kind of like the next manager in waiting, no, it was too soon for that. It didn't work with A.J. Hinch. You know, any other young guy, it wouldn't have worked. But Dusty Baker, that really took a lot of of the burden you know, off of these players, and you saw what, what the results have been. I, I, you know, you started off with Dusty saying one more shot at it, and and I this I had this question already written down: if if the Astros win the World Series this year, will Dusty walk? He's seventy three. He can go watch his son Darren play in the uh, Washington organization. What, what, would this be it? I'll tell you. Here it is, Stevie. It's like this, and for most people, they think okay, it's like a. You know, it's a Joe Montana or Tom Brady, you know, right off into the sunset, you know, uh, Michael Jordan type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. With Dusty, it'll it'll be like this, okay? So, sadly enough, you know, this poor guy's lost six years of, of, of managing, you know, with those years in between Cincinnati or Chicago and Cincinnati and, you know, Cincinnati and Washington and Washington and Houston. And, you know, he didn't think that he was wanted. He thought he was discriminated against for his race. He thought he was discriminated against because of his age. And then again, Washington gave him a shot. And then again, shouldn't, they didn't renew his contract. Every one of these deals has been one year deals with him. And then, so Houston gave him the same thing, a one year deal, which is a slap in the face to the guy who will be in the hall of fame here, you know, once he retires. Right. So he's on a one year deal right now. And he, if the Astros win and the Astros front office says, Hey man, we love everything that's going on here. We want to go, try to go back to back. We want you back. He'll be back. But if they come back and say, eh, we're not sure if we want you back, and he wins, then he'll bow out and say, okay, I'm off here into my wine business, into my solar energy business, go see my son play You know, uh, at the major league level, hopefully here in another couple of years. Yeah. He'll do it. But I think it's all going to come down to if the Astros make him feel loved again, then he'll come back. Back to this series, do you pitch to Aaron Judge if you're the Houston Astros? Or do you just not Absolutely throw him correct. a strike? 
No, 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 no. You don't do a Joe Madden, what he did to, to uh, Bryce Harper, you know, when he was managing the Cubs back in the day. You don't do that because you don't want to put runners on base because there are dangerous guys behind Aaron Judge, especially in Minute Maid Park where you got a short porch, especially, you know, for right-handed hitters. So, no, you got the Astros have not pitched around him. They have not walked him intentionally the entire season. Now, sure, if an occasion pops up, where you know, say you got a runner at second, you got to open base late in the game, uh, and you get, you got a one or two run lead. Then yeah, I think you do that. But Dusty's not going to do that. He's going to, uh, you know, he believes in his horses. Okay, for example, you got Verlander going against Judge. Who doesn't want to see that? And Verlander and Dusty are thinking like, my guy's better than your guy. Go get it. So yeah, you're not going to see any games like that. Aaron Judge, as we've seen, Stevie, this guy strikes out a lot. He strikes out on what? Breaking balls and sliders away. So that's that's Justin Verlander right there. That's Lance McCullers to a T. McCullers will get will junk it up with the best of them, right? And Framber Valdez, what does Framber Valdez do better than anybody in Major League Baseball from a pitching standpoint? He's got that slider, that sinker. He has more ground ball outs than anybody else in Major League Baseball. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think they have the recipe to pitch Aaron Judge the way they want to, and uh, he may get him for a couple homers. He might, but as of right now, go after him. The other two guys that would concern me would be Anthony Rizzo and Matt Carpenter because they're left-handed hitters, and the only lefty on the ALCS roster for Houston is Framber Valdez. They have nobody in the bullpen that can come in and match up against Carpenter or Rizzo late innings. Yeah, they decided they got Will Smith in, in, in a trade you know, earlier on this year from Atlanta, and he just, you know, he wasn't having a good year. His ERA was around five, and it didn't get any better when he came to Houston, so they left him off the roster. So, you know, again, they haven't really needed any lefties uh, out of the bullpen. They're okay with it. So, uh, again, you mentioned Carpenter, but how often is he going to play? And if you can figure out what Aaron Boone's going to do, let me know, because I put him in that same category as Dave Roberts. I mean, this guy will, will manage you out of games. He will blow things apart. He will put starters in the bullpen. He will put bullpen guys to start games. He will mix and match his bullpen where you don't know what the hell he's going to do. So, yeah, uh, again, I think huge managerial advantage here, you know, Dusty versus Aaron Boone. But I think that, you know, when you look at it, it Rizzo, he can be a factor. But, again, he's kind of a streaky guy as well, too. And Carpenter, I just don't know how much you're going to see of Carpenter playing this postseason. And even during the course of the regular season, he hasn't been an everyday player. Yeah, I, I, I try. You're right about Boone, but I, I, if it was me, I'd try to find a spot for Carpenter. You could throw him in yeah, the, I agree. A, as a DH, but then you got to figure out what you what you would do with Stanton at that point. I, I don't know. There's got to be there's got to be a, a better manager would find a way to mix him in there against the right-handers. Um, what else? Oh, Jordan Alvarez. He had a great year last year, right? And then, but this year, up a notch. What did he do different this year that made him even better than he was last year? Well, I'll tell you two things. One, people don't want to talk about, and because they, they probably don't realize it. Defensively, this guy has put himself where he can be the everyday left fielder for the Astros now, and he still spends some time as a DH, but the guy worked on his defense. This guy worked hard on his defense. He's a big guy, and people thought, hey, he, he's just the prototypical DH. No, no, no. This guy's got a gun for an arm in the outfield. He knows how to play that wall out there, that, that goofy left field uh, there uh, here in Minute Maid Park. 
but he just really works on his defense day in and day out. So that's made him a better ball player. And Stevie, here's another thing too that a lot of people don't realize that guys want to play, you know, every inning. These guys don't, I've never met a guy that likes to, to be a DH because you don't have that rhythm. You don't have that flow. So Alvarez wanted to be in the lineup and, and Dusty said, okay, you got to get better defensively. Worked hard at in spring training has been fantastic this year, much improved. So I think that's part of it. The other part is, he has gotten very disciplined, and he's hit the ball the opposite way. I mean, you've seen him go to the opposite field with home runs just in the last series alone. I mean, that was phenomenal. I mean, you know, what he did in game number two uh, going the opposite way and what he did in game one where he hit the 460-foot shot, you know, to close it out in game one when we pulled it down the right field line. So he can hit the all fields. Uh, he is just a machine. This guy isn't just a power hitter. He can hit the all fields. And if they're going to shift on him, Alvarez, has no problem going the opposite way. He also hits left-handers. I mean, he hit left-handers really well again last year, and then this year again yep. up to the notch, three twenty-one against left-handers this year. Yeah, just ask Robbie Ray about that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guy—the yeah. guy's just a. Yeah, and you're right about his defense. His, his defense is so much better uh, this year, and he does have a strong arm. But but again, at the plate, he's just a machine, TC. No, he's phenomenal. And, and, and here's another great thing, like all these other Astros, he's just a great guy to be around. He is so humble. I mean, this guy obviously is going to get a huge contract when it's all said and done a couple of years down the road, but he's not going to change. He's going to be the exact same person. He knew exactly where he came from and everything. And, uh, you know, he, he loves playing baseball. He loves this game. And uh, this is a guy that is a great teammate and just a great person. He's quiet. But, man, uh, this guy just loves the game and can deliver and really is kind of like a five-tool player. All right, TC, NorCal solid, baby. You, me, and Dusty, man, let's let's get this done. Games one and two, we want to get off to a good start here. You got it, Stevie. Again, appreciate you filling in. I know you got some great guests lined up for the next two days. Uh, Appreciate it as always, man. And uh, I I talked to Mattress Mac just about two hours ago as well, too, right? Yeah. And uh, I'll I'll, I'll leave this segment. With what Mattress Max said to me, he goes, Go Strolls! I need a new mattress, by the way, TC, if you can fit that on the plane on the way back. $3,000, Stevie. Guess what? <laughs> you bet you spend $3,000 for a mattress and the Astros win. You know what your mattress is, Stevie? It's free, free, free. Not Chuck will tell you. It's free, free, free for everybody. <laughs> Checks in the mail, TC. Take care, brother. Hey, thanks. Have a great day. Have a great time out there. Will do, man. Pictures and, uh, and post to follow very, very soon tonight. All right, buddy. Thanks again. T.C. Martin on correspondence for us. Major League Baseball coverage from Houston, the Astros, against the Yankees tonight. Uh, Coming up next, the uh, VGK and Calgary played a hockey game last night. Calgary won. The score was close, but I'm going to tell you that game wasn't really close. We'll talk with Derek Wills, the voice of the Calgary Flames, after these messages. Hey everyone, this is Carnell, a.k.a. Golden Pipes, and I want to welcome you back to the T.C. Martin Show. No better way to get into a hockey segment when Golden Pipes first, and then a little Stevie Ray Vaughan. Life is good. I love Nunchuck. Stevie Slapshot with you. I'm going to be here uh, today and tomorrow filling in for TC. We're going to talk a little hockey right now. 3-2, the Calgary Flames, a winner last night in Calgary, beating 
the Vegas Golden Knights. And we have the voice of the Calgary Flames, Derek Wills, from the Fan 960 up in Calgary. Derek, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. It was a 3-2 to two score last night, Derek, but I didn't think it was that close at all. In every statistical category, the Calgary Flames dominated uh, the Vegas Golden Knights and in particular stood out to me uh, Vegas was outshot 40-20. to 20. Jack Eichel and Mark Stone, no shots. And I'm guessing that was by design from Daryl Sutter. Agree or, or, or not, Derek? Did they purposely uh, you know, kind of stack against uh, Eichel and Stone getting shots? I definitely think they did. Uh, I mean, anytime you identify players that are as good as Jack Eichel and Mark Stone, uh, you do your best to, uh, if not shut them down, then at least slow them down. And I think the Flames are better equipped to do that now than they have been in years, maybe even in decades, just because of their depth. And, you know, Daryl Sutter, who's uh, been to three Stanley Cup finals and uh, won a couple of Stanley Cups with the Kings, uh, He's talked a lot about uh, how you build a winning team in this league, and he's talked about how you do that up the middle, starting with your goaltenders and then your six defensemen and then your centermen. And when you look at the Flames this season and compare them to the team that finished first in the Pacific Division and went to the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs last season, you've got the same two goaltenders in Jacob Arkstrom and Dan Vladar. I think they've got one of the best tandems in the league, uh, obviously led by Markstrom, who finished second in Vesna Trophy voting, but I think they've upgraded both their defense core and their forward group. They brought in Mackenzie Weger, who was a guy who played on the top pairing for the President's Trophy-winning Panthers alongside Aaron Eckblad the last couple of seasons. You know, He's been a real boost to their top four on defense. And then at forward, you bring in Jonathan Huberdeau, uh, who kind of replaces Johnny Goudreau, similar players, even though there are some differences there. And maybe the most important addition for the Flames in the offseason was Nazem Kadri, uh, who is a pain in the butt to play against and the guy who you can play in all situations and against uh, anybody. And he's getting a lot of tough matchups. He's doing a lot of heavy lifting early in the season for the Flames. And, you know, down the middle, you look at their top three centermen. You've got Elias Lindholm, who finished second in Selkie Trophy voting last season, one of the best 200-foot players in the league, certainly one of the best two-way centermen in the game. You've got Nazem Kadri, who I'd put in the same category. And maybe Michael Backlund isn't uh, the elite player that those two guys are, but you know he's a really good 200-foot centerman as well. So when, when you've got guys who can play at both ends of the ice and who are as good uh, without the puck as they are with the puck, then you've got a chance to limit the damage that guys like Eichel and Stone can do. And Flames uh, did a good job of that last night. Yeah, Backlund's really solid. I agree with you, Derek, on him. And and Kadri kind of replaces Kachuk. He's that guy, if, if he's on your team, you love him. And if he's on the other side, you you hate him. And and Kadri and, and Kachuk are, are the same in, in that vein. Um, the, the, the VGK, the, the, the second period for years now, from, from their existence, has been their best period. And last night, six penalties <laughs> in, in, the, in the second period. And I think... As you talked about the depth and the speed of Calgary, even though they're up two to nothing, it felt like in the second period Vegas was chasing the game and grabbing and hooking and everything they could do to slow Calgary down and and, and got caught with all those penalties. Yeah, it's funny because in the Flames' first two games uh, against the defending Stanley Cup champion Avalanche last Thursday and then against the team that ended their season, the Oilers, last Saturday, one of the reasons, maybe the biggest reason why the Flames won those first two games 
is because they got off to great starts. They were up 5-1 against Colorado and then 4-1 against Edmonton and were able to close both of those games out, even though both the Avalanche and the Oilers did push in the second and third periods. But not a strong start for the Flames on home ice last night. I actually thought that the Golden Knights' fourth line set the tone in the first shift of the hockey game. And they were on their toes. They put the Flames back on their heels for the entire first period. And when you look at who got the only two power plays of the first period, I think it had a lot to do with the tone that was set by that fourth line because the the Golden Knights were the only team to get any power plays in the first period but couldn't take advantage. But in the second period, it was the Flames' fourth line that I thought kind of turned the tide and set the tone. You, You talk about those six straight power plays for the Flames. Brett Ritchie... The fourth-line right winger drew three of them, three of them in a row. So when you're getting quality minutes like that from your fourth line, which for the Flames is Kevin Rooney, who is a newcomer and has been a really nice fit, and then Milan Lucic and Brett Ritchie, who are big physical guys who certainly uh, can make you think twice about going back to get pucks, and you could see it. You could see it on the faces of the Golden Knights. You could see it in their body language. They were thinking to themselves, geez, are these guys coming at me again? They just got sick and tired of it, and, and you're right. Uh, when you're playing on your toes, you tend to draw penalties. When you're playing on your heels, you tend to take them. The Flames took two in the first. The Golden Knights took six in the second, and those two power play goals were obviously huge in uh, last night's come-from-behind win for the Flames. You're right about that fourth line. You know, Cassidy had started that fourth line uh, all four games the start of every period, and, and it mm-hmm. has worked. They have, they have set a tone. And, but last night, again, in that second period, it just wasn't there. Calgary was just, just the better team. And again, in every statistical category, if not for Logan Thompson, the, this game oh. should, should have been like 5-1 Flames. Uh, the, their, uh, their, there was the own goal, so I take that one back. And then the first goal uh, by Vegas, uh, you know, Markstrom, I, I don't know what happened. I, I, I think he just kind of nonchalanted it. I think he, he saw it. it. Yeah. Yeah, but he he just didn't glove it, and, that, and that's a that's a puck that he'll glove ninety nine out of a hundred. Yeah, and I didn't love the second goal either. I know there was a little bit of a tip there uh, upon further review, but uh, Jacobs is hard on himself as any player in the league, and I think he'd like to have both of those goals back. But you know what? The, the best goaltenders in the game they give up goals, and sometimes they give up bad goals. You want to see how they respond uh, to giving those bad goals up. And and I said uh, after it was two nothing Golden Knights that. Jacob Markstrom had to shut the door, and he did. Didn't give up a goal for the rest of the night. And then there was the guy at the other end of the ice, and it was a great story last night because Logan Thompson, his road to the NHL is uh, uh, particular as just about anybody's yeah. that uh, I've ever covered, right? Uh, yeah. You know, the guy, uh, the guy plays uh, uh, minor hockey in Calgary growing up and then goes and plays uh, college hockey or junior hockey and then ends up going to play for the Brock University Badgers in U sports. And you know, he's played for about a million different teams and about a million different leagues since turning pro. And, you know, my biggest concern with the Golden Knights uh, going into the season was goaltending because I love their group of forwards. I love their defense core. Uh, I just I didn't know if they had a legitimate number one goaltender without Robin Leonard. But with the way he's played so far this season and with the play he played last night, you could argue he was their best player. He was their best player there. in the road. Yeah, I, I think he was as well. I mean, that glove save that he made oh. was maybe the save of the season so it far might have in the been. National Hockey League. Yeah. Just that, that good. And he gave him a chance to win last night. So, um, ultimately, yeah, you do need to get the goaltending. The Golden Knights got it last night. But when you take six straight penalties, you just keep shooting yourself in the foot. 
going to be tough to beat a good team that way. And the, the Flames are a really good team. I think the Golden Knights are a really good team as well. And, you know, people uh, were way too quick in writing them off going into the season. But, uh, yeah, penalty trouble last night probably cost the Golden Knights the hockey game. Yeah, they have played a lot better, uh, Derek, than I thought they would to start this season so far. Now, they haven't played the strongest competition until they faced Calgary uh, last night. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the power play has been a lot better uh, for the Knights so far this year. They're getting the puck to the middle of the ice and then, and then going uh, you know, to the wing uh, to get scores or, or scoring from the middle. But they have not been able to get the puck to the middle of the ice on the power play the previous four years. So at least they're improving in, in that respect. And they, they have played well. They're just not the strongest competition. I, I, I got to... I got to ask you about Daryl Sutter. I I love the guy. He won the two cups in L.A. He's been a great coach for Calgary over the years. He shuts down Vegas last night, but the, the guy never smiles, Derek. What what he, he, never, he never seems. Is he ever happy? Have you ever seen him? Does he like Christmas? Does he like puppies? Does he ever smile? No, hates Santa, hates puppies, uh, hates losing <laughs> uh, more than anything else. Uh, he does love winning. Uh, he gets excited about wins. There's no doubt about that. But he was the coach that I think the Flames needed to get them over the hump. I now, agree. A lot has changed. The, the coach changed. The core has changed. Really, the only guy who I considered to be a core player who is still with the team from when I started calling their games back in 2014, 2015, is Michael Backlund. Right. The, the rest of the Flames' core is gone, which, in hindsight, probably had to happen yeah. for them to take uh, another step. And, you know, they became... Uh, I think a Stanley Cup contender last season, even though they lost in the second round, uh, if they had better goaltending in that series against the owners, uh, they might have won it, probably would have won it. Um, and now I, I think they're a team that's really built to have postseason success. And, and maybe they have another really good regular season and win the Pacific Division again. But one of the, the words that we've been using to describe this team is mature. And I think that really does stem from Daryl Sutter and the focus of both the head coach and of the general manager, Brad Loving over the last couple of years has to, has been to bring in players who have a lot of experience. And when I say that specifically players who have made long playoff runs and who have won Stanley cups and the flames have added a bunch of those guys to the roster over the last couple of years. And they don't seem to get frazzled by anything. Uh, They're ahead in games. They're behind in games. Uh, the, the message that the coaching staff has been sending to the players and really trying to hammer home for the last couple of years is just play the game the right way, go through the process, and the results will be there. Maybe not every single night over the course of an 82-game regular season, but uh, it's all about the details and you know, the Flames even watching them practice. Uh, you know, Daryl Sutter, the way he practices, I, I just love to watch it because he spends absolutely no time at the whiteboard. Basically, it's the player's responsibility to know what the drills are before practice starts. And then when the whistle blows, it's nonstop. They skate and, and they focus on uh, their compete level in practice. They focus on their execution level in practice. And they, they focus on playing fast. They want to play fast, which means you got to practice fast. And even just watching practice today, that's exactly what I saw from them. So, you know, he's come in. Uh, obviously, he's got a, a lot of street cred because of his resume. Uh, just won his 702nd game, coached in his 1400th game last night. And when you've got a couple of Stanley Cups and you say this is what we have to do to win, you know, players buy into that, especially when the results are there. And the results have been there the last couple of seasons. But it's uh, all about the details with Daryl Sutter. And, you know, he's actually a lot looser on non-game days than he is on game days. 
and and sometimes even a little bit looser in the morning on game days. But once he gets back to the rink and it's time to focus on the game, then he's got the blinders on and uh, he, he's trying to to really kind of set the tone for the entire team, including his coaching staff. Uh, he might not be the easiest guy to work for or to play for, but he's got a proven track record and and he's taken this team to a new level and uh, I think really turned them in to legitimate Stanley Cup contenders. And uh, it might not be easy every day, but uh, it's easier when you're winning and the Flames uh, have three of those so far this season. I got to tell you, from afar, Derek, this is the kind of guy I would have loved to play for and I, and I, and I did not have enough skill to, to play at any professional level. But, but it, it feels like he's a disciplinarian, yes, but he's fair with you and he gets the most out of you. He certainly does. And you saw that last season. And so many Flames had career years. And that wasn't uh, a coincidence. It, it had a lot to do with not only Daryl Sutter, but the entire coaching staff. You, you bring in Kirk Muller as an associate coach. And I think he's almost the yin to Daryl Sutter's yang in the sense that, you know, Kirk always has a smile on his face and is always positive. And I would say the same thing about Ryan Huska, who I think is going to be a head coach in this league sooner rather than later. And Cale McLean, uh, he's a, a young up-and-comer and, and I think an excellent addition to the coaching staff as well. But you're right. It's, it's really a mindset, and he's changed the culture in Calgary. And I think the word culture sometimes gets overused in professional sport. But if you don't have the right culture, good luck winning. And j- just the difference that he made with Johnny Gaudreau last season. And I know Gaudreau's gone, and most Flames fans want to hate him for leaving. But, you know, Johnny Gaudreau went from a guy who was great with the puck, not very good without it, to being a guy who was still great with the puck, pretty darn good without it last year. And I think what Daryl Sutter was able to do with Johnny Gaudreau specifically, but other guys as well, is convince them that if you're good without it, you're going to have it more. And if you have it more, you're going to get rewarded more. And for Johnny Gaudreau, it was a career year with 115 points, and he got rewarded with a big contract and free agency as a result. I think you can say the same about Matthew Kachuk. Both of those guys are gone, but you know, there's plenty of players who are still with the Flames who have reaped the rewards of uh, the type of coach that Daryl Sutter is. And you're right, he squeezes everything he can out of his players and out of his team collectively. And you know, the Flames uh, had a heck of a year last year. Uh, wasn't good enough uh, for them individually or collectively, so he's pushing them to be even better this year. And three games in against three legitimate contenders in the Avalanche, the Oilers, and the Golden Knights. They're a perfect 3-0, and uh, there's still plenty of room to grow. I think that's probably what's the most exciting thing for me. Derek, you know what I noticed last night, and you said it, they play with speed, but it's a controlled yeah. speed in that there's no turnovers. There, there are very few guys out of position at any given time. They, they, they know where to go. They, they, they know, you know, and, and again, they don't turn the puck over. It's just really impressive to be playing that fast and not make mistakes. Yeah, and it all starts in practice. And I actually uh, asked Ryan Huska about it today during media availability. I said, what does playing fast mean for you? And are you happy with how fast your team is playing right now? And, you know, he said it's all about the puck. You can be a fast skater. It doesn't mean that you play fast because you've got to think the game. You've got to use your teammates. You've got to be in the right place at the right time. And I think the Flames have played really fast this season, especially in comparison to their opponents. But I still think that there's room to grow in that department. And I think the perfect example of that would be their first line. 
on the power play, the threesome of Jonathan Huberto uh, along with uh, Elias Lindholm and Tyler Toffoli, they've been deadly. But five on five, they've left a lot on the table. And you can tell that as three guys who have never played together before, prior to the preseason at least, that they're still trying to get on the same page. So that's where I think that the Flames, as fast as they've played so far this season, they can play faster, and I would really point the finger at their top line. They've done some good things at 5-on-5, five five, but you can tell that they're just they're not quite there as far as timing and as far as chemistry. So well, that's going to be a work in progress. And sometimes chemistry happens instantaneously. Uh, sometimes it takes time. Uh, with those three guys, it seems to be taking a little bit of time, but that's okay. Uh, the Flames are winning despite the fact that their first line hasn't done a lot of damage of five-on-five, and uh, it really only has to be a matter of time before those guys do start to connect and uh, do start to put some pucks in the net at even strength, and when that happens, they're going to be uh, an even tougher team to play against. Oh, man, the rest of the NHL better look out. Based on what I saw <laughs> last night, Derek, if they're not quite there yet, look out, NHL, for the Calgary Flames. How does the city of Calgary feel about the, the changes that, that have been made? As you, you mentioned, Johnny Gaudreau out, uh, Matthew Kachuk out, but they brought in Jonathan Huberdeau, Nazem Kadri, and a year and a half ago they brought in uh, Tyler Toffoli. So the, the, the fans in Calgary, do, do they like the new team better? or Are they upset that Kachuk's not there anymore? How, what, what's the feeling in Calgary? It's so funny because the, the offseason was really a roller coaster ride. I'm talking about the most epic roller coaster that you've ever ridden, whether it be at Canada's Wonderland here or at Six Flags there. I mean, just so many ups and downs. And really, it started in the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Flames forced to a seventh and deciding game in their first-round series versus the Stars. They were by far the better of the two teams in all seven games, but they ran into a brick wall named Jake Ottinger, and they really had to stick with it. And and the game uh, that ultimately sent them to the second round wasn't decided until overtime. And Johnny Gaudreau was the hero in overtime of Game 7 against the Stars. And then that sets up the first Battle of Alberta in the Stanley Cup playoffs in 31 years, dating back to 1991. So not only the city of Calgary and the city of Edmonton, the entire province of Alberta was going nuts getting set for the first Battle of Alberta in the playoffs in more than three decades. The Flames win Game 6, playing an Oilers brand of hockey. 9-6 was the final, and the city of Calgary was uh, on cloud nine at that point. It it didn't look like the Flames were going to lose the series because they just beat the Oilers at their own game. And then they lost four straight games. Gentlemen sweep. And that felt like rock bottom until Johnny Gaudreau decided he was going to test unrestricted free agency. So then that was the second blow. And then Matthew Kachuk informed the, ter- informed the team that he wasn't open to signing a long-term extension, which basically painted Brad Treleving into a corner. He had to trade him or risk losing him after this season for nothing. So with the entire league knowing what position that Treleving and the Flames were in, there was only a handful of teams that Kachuk was willing to be traded to which I thought put the Flames at a real disadvantage until that one Friday night, which turned everything. And I was actually at a wedding in Regina, and I thought something might be happening that day, so I burnt out the battery on my phone, refreshing it to to, to see if uh, anything was happening back in Calgary. Finally, at about 10 o'clock, I put my phone away, thinking it's 10 o'clock on a Friday night, nothing's happening now. But an hour later, my girlfriend pulls out her phone and and shows me this tweet, and I, I look at it, 
and I had had a couple of glasses of wine at this point, <laughs> I must admit. <laughs> I look at it, though, and I, I thought, well, you know, some pie-in-the-sky fan proposal. That's not a real trade. So I hand her the phone back. He goes, well, it's Elliot Friedman. He's got a blue check mark. I said, what? <laughs> so I look at the return for Matthew Kachuk, who's a really good player. Don't get me wrong. Right. Uh, didn't do much in the playoffs for the Flames over the years, though. I will say that. Maybe you'll have more luck with the Panthers. But it's almost impossible to replace a 115-point player in this league. You lose a 115-point player in Johnny Gaudreau, and you add a 115-point player in Jonathan Huberto, who led the league in assists. He had 85 assists last season. The most elect wingers had in NHL history. So you bring him in. One for one. That wouldn't have been a bad deal for Matthew Kachuk. On top of that, you get Mackenzie Weger, a first-pairing defenseman who really fits the way the Flames want to play. You get Cole Schwint, a prospect the Flames are really excited about, and you get a first-round pick. That Friday night, that trade changed everything for the Flames. You know what They it... went from being a team that was probably going to have to at least retool, if not rebuild, to being a team that a lot of us thought was better on paper than last year's team that won the Pacific Division and went to the second round of the playoffs. So really, it was that trade that changed everything. And even though I wasn't here in 2004, I've talked to plenty of people who were. This is the most excited Flames fans have been about the team since 2004 when they unexpectedly went Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final versus the Lightning. So it's amazing how you went from rock bottom to sky high uh, based on the, the trade that was made one Friday night with the Panthers. You know what it reminded me of, Derek, and, and we got to get out of here real quick, but I just it, it, that, that deal, when I heard about it, it reminded me of the Sackick-Duchesne deal where I thought he had, Sackick had waited too long and was not going to get anywhere near the return that he ended up getting uh, for Duchesne in, in Colorado. Just, just an amazing deal uh, turned in there by, uh, by, Colorado, uh, by Calgary, rather, uh, you know, to, get, to bring Huberto in uh, for Kachuk with the other pieces that you mentioned. Uh, Derek Wills has been our guest, the Calgary Frames broadcaster from the Fan 960 in Calgary. Uh, Derek, what's your Twitter handle so we can all follow you? It's uh, at... Fan 960 Wills. Well, uh, Derek, thanks very much for the time this afternoon. Good luck to the Calgary Frames uh, the rest of the season. Take care. Have a great week. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, I will say that even though I'm the Flames broadcaster, it's really good to see Jack Eichel healthy again and Mark Stone healthy again. Two fantastic players who I love to watch. And uh, I'm glad the Flames kept them off the score sheet last night. But uh, that might be the only time they do it this season. So thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to some more good games between the Flames and the Golden Knights. Thanks, Derek. We'll talk to you later, maybe. Derek Wills. Good. Thanks. Derek Wills, broadcaster for the Calgary Flames. Uh, 960, the fan in Calgary. 3-2, uh, to two, the Calgary Flames beat the Vegas Golden Knights last night. The next game for the Vegas Golden Knights will be tomorrow night against Winnipeg. We'll be back with Andy Esco after the top of the hour news.